You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. All right, it is good to see you tonight. If you want to go ahead and grab your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 6, um, that would be helpful to have that out and open on your lap. And why don't we say a thanks to the guys who led us tonight? Didn't they do a great job? Thank you guys very much. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 6. While you're turning there, uh, to all of our uh, kiddos in the room, so we should have like five and aboves, all those guys in the room. It's so good to have you tonight. So we're grateful that you're in here with us. So Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 9. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 9, should be on the screen for you as well. It goes like this. <clears throat> Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Petition two, your kingdom come. Petition three, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Petition four, verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. Petition five, and forgive us of our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And petition six, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is God's word. So we're in part six of the set of sermons we just called Teach Us to Pray, where we are working through the Lord's Prayer. And, uh, and in this uh, last sermon, uh, number six in this series, we are dealing with the last phrase that goes like this in verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Do you remember back to the opening uh, pages of the Bible? You remember the first story that we see, that the good, big-hearted God that we get to know in the Bible has created the universe. He created everything that you see. And then he spends time forming and, and fashioning what he has created to make it inhabitable for people. After he's made what he has created inhabitable for people, he breathes life into our first parents, Adam and Eve, and puts them in a garden. I mean, it's a pretty good gig if you can get it, right? I mean, they had a pretty good thing going there. And the Lord looks at them and says, here's, here's what I'm going to do for you. I put you in this beautiful garden, and you can just run free in this thing. You've got unlimited access to all of these great things that I have created just for you to make your life incredibly rich and robust. You can have free range in all of it. Just don't eat of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat of that one, you're going to die. But you can have everything else that you want. And then you get to chapter 3. This is uh, the most catastrophic event in the history of the world. It starts with just an ominous sort of overtones, right? So you get to Genesis chapter 3, and the, the, in, you know, the, the first verse, the introductory statement in the chapter, says, And Satan, or this serpent, was more crafty than any other beast of the field. And you just read that first line, and you're like, uh-oh, this isn't good. This is going to bad places. And he gets into a conversation with Eve. And before you know it, he is called into question the, the big-heartedness, the kind-heartedness of God. He's talking to Eve, and he's putting this doubt in her head. Are you sure you won't die? I mean, are you sure about this? Did he really say that? And why would he say that? I mean, if God said that to you, the only reason he would say that to you is because he knows that if you have that, you'll be like him. He calls into question the good-heartedness of God toward, toward Eve. And if you know the storyline of, of that story, it's just within another verse or two where Eve takes the forbidden fruit, bites into it, and in that moment sends this world into its brokenness. Just a catastrophic moment that happens there. Or you, you may remember the story of Moses. Moses was born into just a, 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 really a season and a time period of unrest and evil. 
Just a terrible moment for a kid to be born. He's born into a world where Israel is enslaved by Egypt. And if you remember the story in Exodus, the opening chapters of Exodus, Pharaoh has become so insecure because the people of Israel have grown so big that he's looked at his midwives and said, here's the thing, every newborn male kid born in Israel, those male kids are all going to be put to death. I want you to kill them all. I mean, you know, it's always important when you read the Bible to make sure you're getting sights and sounds in there, right? You're using your imagination. That is a terrible moment in the people of Israel's life. And this is when Moses is born. He's born into a world. When he breaks out of the womb, he is into a world where that is true, where Pharaoh has decreed that over his life. And if you know the story of, of Moses, um, his mother hides him for three months, then puts him in a basket and floats him down the Nile, which is going to end in his sure death, right? But in the providence of God, Pharaoh's, one of Pharaoh's daughters found Moses in the Nile. She adopts him, raises him up in the royal palace. This whole thing goes down. Then one, you know, at some point in his life, he realizes, Moses realizes, I don't think, I'm not an Egyptian. I've been fooled my whole life. I'm actually, I'm actually an Israelite. And then one day he is walking along and he sees one of these ruthless Egyptian taskmasters beating some Hebrew people. And in a moment of uncontrolled anger, he just snaps. And he takes one of these Egyptian taskmasters and murders him on the spot. You may remember the story of David. Um, th there are few people in the Bible as celebra uh, celebrated as David is. In the Old Testament, he is a bright spot in the Old Testament. There, there's no question. But as bright of a spot as David is, in his life is embedded very dark shadows. So, so you may remember the story um, where David is one day on his palace roof. He's looking around and he sees a lady and decides, I want. And because he was king, he could get what he wants. Just in a moment of uncontrolled passion. I mean, just a day where a guy that is so celebrated in the Bible, a day where in a moment of uncontrolled passion, he wrecks everything. So, so he takes what he wants. And in the kindness and mercy of God, God would not let him hide his sin. And this night of uncontrolled passion ends with a pregnant Bathsheba. Now, in that moment, David could have confessed his sin. He could have brought all of his sin to the light. But what does he do? He pushes all of his chips into let's cover it up. So he tries to bring Uriah, Bathsheba's um, husband, back from battle. So he brings Uriah back and he tries to get Uriah to go home in an attempt to make sure that he would be with his wife in an attempt to try to fool Uriah into thinking that the kid that would be born is actually Uriah's, not David's. But Uriah, in an act of loyalty to King David, would not go home. He wouldn't do it. So David puts a letter in Uriah's hand, sends him back to Joab, the commander of David's army, and the letter says, make sure Uriah dies. Now just, can you just kind of put yourself in that story for a moment? I mean, when I, when I think about that, it just makes me want to sigh and just cry for a minute. It's terrible. Um, think of Elijah. You, you may remember him in the Old Testament. He's got a moment of... Uh, of unbelievable exploits for the Lord, just doing great things for the Lord. If you remember, there's this one moment on Mount Carmel where he calls down fire from heaven to show the people of Israel there is one true God and his name isn't Baal. It's the God of the Bible. That's the one true God. He's got this incredible moment. And then all of a sudden, Jezebel, after that moment, decides, I'm gonna kill him. I'm gonna chase him down and I'm killing Elijah. And he is so tired He's so frail and depressed that he, in that moment, just wants to die. 
I mean, he's ready to commit suicide in that moment. Or think of the Pharisees in the Bible. They get a bad rap in our day and age because we can kind of see the totality of the picture. But if you were alive in the first century, they were the good guys. These were the best of the best guys. Now now think about their moment in the Bible. In their zeal for the Lord, here's what they thought. To protect the name of God, we're gonna actually have to kill the son of God. I mean, if we're gonna protect the name of God, somebody's gotta die. Lo and behold, the somebody that has to die in their mind is the very son of God. Now, isn't that interesting? Their their vice of I'm gonna kill the son of God was cloaked in the virtue of we're going to protect the name of God. That's what we're gonna do. Now, I love to tell Bible stories to our kids. Like one of my favorite things to do is just to get them around and to tell some Bible story to them. And every time we do a Bible story, I'll always end by asking them, what do you think we can learn from that story? So just think about the stories we've just heard and ask yourself the question, what can we learn from these stories? Like what is it that that God who penned these stories and put them together in a Bible so that you would have this from him, what is it that the Lord would want us to know as we think through these biblical stories? I think this is the answer, point one of the sermon, that we are all in grave danger. That we are all in grave danger, that you're in grave danger, that I'm in grave danger. I mean, think about the point of these stories. The point of these stories is not to say, hey, the worst of you out there, guess what? You can commit the worst of crimes. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is to say, hey, you out there, not just the worst of you, but the very best of you out there. Here's what you need to know about your life, the very best of you out there, that you're capable of the worst crimes. That's that's the point of these stories. It's to try to show us the capacity in us for the worst of things. And ironically, the point of all of these stories is the point of the sixth petition in the Lord's Prayer. That this is the point that Jesus is making here. Now think about the Lord's Prayer for a minute. It comes in two parts. Part one are vertical requests. It's our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. That's petition one. Petition two, your kingdom come. Petition three, your will be done. Then petitions four through six, the second half of the Lord's prayer, are horizontal requests. Petition number four is give us this day our daily bread concerning food, right? Our our basic necessities of life. The second request deals with our forgiveness, right? It's, it's, Lord, forgive us of our debts as we also forgive our debtors. It's an issue of forgiveness. And then you get to the sixth petition, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Petition four deals with food. Petition five deals with forgiveness. Petition six, listen to this, deals with our frailty, with our weakness. Petition six is in the Lord's prayer. The Lord is saying, every time you pray, here's a category that you should explore. Your frailty. You should explore the category of how easily tempted you are, about your need for deliverance from evil and temptation. You should explore that. Why is that? Because Jesus wants a constant reminder in our prayer life. He wants us to constantly remember just how capable of the worst of sins we are. He wants us to be constantly reminded of just how capable we are of the worst of things. Now, let's take a deep breath and ask yourself the question, do you think of yourself that way? When you think of like, capable of the worst of things, is that those people over there, or are you included in that category? Petition six of the Lord's Prayer is meant to help you reorient your life around this reality. You're in the category. 
you are well equipped to absolutely wreck your life. It's meant to convince us of that. That you're well equipped, that I am well equipped to absolutely wreck our lives. That's the point of this petition. Now, when you look at this petition, you might could ask yourself, what is the danger embedded into it? If we're all in grave danger, what is the danger? How would we define that danger? It uses two ideas to describe the danger that we're all in. So look again at verse 13. Here's the danger. And lead us not into temptation. There's danger one. But deliver us from evil. There's danger two. So you have temptation. This is the first danger. Temptation is anything that has the effect or kind of produces the effect of seducing you away from a love for God. That's temptation. Anything in your life that has the the end result of seducing you away from a love for God, that numbs you to the things of God. That's temptation. So he's saying, here's danger one, temptation. Here's danger number two, evil. Now your translation, depending on which one you're looking at, might say evil one. Either way, I think the idea is the same. He is saying there is legitimate evil in the world and it's coming after you. And in that evil, I think you could think of it in two different ways. There is an evil that is inside of us and an evil that is outside of us. So let's talk evil that is inside of us. This is the the term in the New Testament called the flesh. The flesh is that part of you that is at war with God. It's that internal part of you that is deformed. Your desires are deformed by sin so that you're consistently wanting things that God doesn't want. You know that about you? It's a humbling thing to watch your heart and all the things that it wants that aren't good, isn't it? That's the flesh in you. Even if you are a son or daughter of God, although that flesh is dethroned in your life, it's not yet destroyed. It will be a great day when Jesus comes back someday, though, won't it? When that thing goes away. But that's the flesh. That's the the evil that is in us. Then there's also evil that is outside of us. This is the evil one side of that. The, The Bible gives him a name. His name is Satan. Peter calls him your adversary. That's 1 Peter 5, 8. Revelation chapter 12 calls him the accuser. John chapter 8 calls him a murderer and the father of lies. He's pictured throughout the Bible with with images that convey the strength that he has, the power that he has. So in 1 Peter 5, 8, he's pictured as a roaring lion. In Revelation 12, the great red dragon, the strong man in Matthew chapter 12, the God of this world in 2 Corinthians 4, the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians chapter 2. So it's obvious that that when it's talking about Satan, it is talking about a very personal, powerful being that is hell-bent on destroying us all, right? So it says, here are the two dangers that you have, temptation on one hand and evil on the other, both evil inside of you and evil outside of you. This is all of our problems. Now, I wanna spend just a few moments teasing out the combination of those two things putting Satan and evil combined with temptation and just teasing that out and trying to answer the question, what are some of the ways that Satan tempts us? If temptation and this Satan, accuser, adversary person, kind of combines to be our danger, how is it that Satan goes about tempting us? I wanna give you four or five ways here for you to consider. How does Satan tempt us? Here's way number one. Satan tempts by tailoring temptation. Now, if you've ever bought nice clothes before, you might have gotten those nice clothes tailored. What does it mean to get them tailored? It means that they are fit to you. They are cut down, re-sewn to fit you well. That's what it means to tailor it. So what does it mean for Satan to tailor temptation? 
It means that he knows your particular frame, your frailties, your weaknesses, your proclivities. He knows your particular brokenness, not just like you randomly, like together out there, but you in particular. He knows you like that. He's observed you like that. And then he tailor makes temptation to exploit your weaknesses. Now, isn't that a scary thought? That that is how Satan works with us. I enjoy fishing. If you are an angler out there, if you enjoy fishing, we could use a fishing analogy to describe this. If you are going to fish, you want to make sure that you've got the bait on the hook that is most likely to trigger a strike from the fish you want to catch, right? It doesn't do you any good to throw a lure in the water that a fish won't bite, right? So what do you do if you're trying to fish and catch something? You try to make sure that you personalize the presentation, that you get the right bait on the right hook to throw in front of the right fish. Now, welcome to the way Satan interacts with every one of us in this room. He patiently waits to get the right bait on the, the right hook so that you will most likely bite that hook. Now, isn't that just a sobering thing to consider? That you have a real adversary out there that's operating in your life right now like that. That he is proactively thinking today, what bait should I throw at him? What lure should I drag right in front of his face today? What spinner bait would be just perfect for her today? I mean, this is Satan today thinking like that about your life. So the first way that he tempts us, he tempts us by tailoring it specifically to our life. Secondly, Satan tempts patiently. He tempts patiently. This scares me to death to think about this, that Satan is an ambush predator. Okay, that's the way Satan works. If you want to use like the imagery from 1 Peter 5, he's a lion. When lions want to kill something, they don't like make themselves seen and then go try to run you down, right? They lie in wait and then they ambush you. Now that is a picture of how Satan interacts with all of our lives. One of the, the verses in the Bible that, that has forever haunted me since the first time I read it is Luke chapter 4, verse 13. This is right after Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness. Listen to what it says right after that. Luke 4, 13. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from Jesus. The last four words are terrifying. Until an opportune time. He left him. He just kind of, he took his hands off until the perfect time to put his hands back on. This is how Satan worked in his life. It's what the Puritans called the hour of temptation. Like Satan will so often give you like all of these low-hanging fruit sort of temptation. And all of those are like precursors to the one moment, the opportune moment to, to do the most damage to the most amount of people through sin in your life to do the most damage in dishonoring the name of God, that he will patiently wait for years in your life, if that's what it takes, for the exact moment when you are the most vulnerable and it will do the most damage to drag you down. Now, isn't that a sobering thing to consider? That he, he tempts patiently. I am convinced that it's a, lot, it's a lot easier to start the journey with God than it is to finish the journey with God. I'm convinced of that. And this is part of the reason it's because when you start the journey with God, Satan from that point forward is waiting for the opportune time to absolutely murder your life. To wreck our lives, he's waiting for that moment. He's, he's a patient tempter. Here's the third way that Satan tempts us. 
Satan tempts gradually, gradually. When I was in high school, I used to wrestle, and that feels like a former life of mine. Got to go back a long way to pull these memories. But, uh, but you know, I look back in a couple of moments, and it's like, did, I know we had a coach, but did we have a coach with a brain? Because it doesn't seem like what happened here should have happened. And as a, for instance, we would go on like a weekend, like wrestling tournament, like that sort of a thing. So we'd get to a place on a Friday, we would check into a hotel, and then our coach would stick four of us in a room, four high school kids in a room, give them the key and say, I'll see you in the morning. Does, does something seem wrong with that picture? I mean, who thinks that's a good idea ever to do that? So um, that was our night. So we would get the room key, we would go in the room, and then whatever happens, happens. And on this one particular night, I, d- I had like the cardinal sin of all cardinal sins when you're staying with four guys in one room. I took a shower and did not lock the door. It was a bad moment. The next thing I know, the door swings open, and over the top of the shower curtain, I see a cat flying across the top of the cower shirt curtain. That moment went down. And I, I can still see, you know, it's like some of those moments are like burned into your brain forever. I can still see that moment when I made eye contact with this cat. He's terrified. I'm terrified. It's that moment. Now, when I got out of the shower, I was concerned with one thing. And here was the one thing I was concerned about. Where and how did you get a cat? That's the one question I've got to know. How did that happen? And literally, they take me outside and they show me how they did it. And here was how they did it. There was a cat underneath a car right in front of our door. And so uh, they took some food they had in the room and they threw a piece of food right in front of the cat's face. And the cat looked at the food and thought, why wouldn't I? So he grabbed the food and, and ate it. The next piece of food, they threw an inch or two closer. And the cat, the first bite felt okay, pretty safe. Took a couple of steps, grabbed that one, and he jumped back into the car. Threw the next one a few inches further out. The next one a few inches further until they had one of their guys in ambush behind a tire. When the cat came out, bam, he grabbed him, and the cat had his night ruined, right? Now, let that be a picture of how temptation works in all of our lives. Just one step at a time. Each particular step never feeling like a big deal until you realize you are completely out from under God. Maybe you could think of it this way. Satan is equally satisfied if you take one giant jump into sin or if it's a thousand small little steps. And the truth is for most of us in the room, it's a, small, it's a million of these little steps. If this is the moment of Satan wrecking our life here, here's what he does. It's one small step. It doesn't feel like a big deal. It's just, it's just one small step. And then the next day, it's one more small step. The next day, it's one more small step. And the next day, you have absolutely wrecked your life. This is how C.S. Lewis described it. He said, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope. Soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. That's the way Satan works in our life. It's the whole frog in the kettle thing. The temperature just continues to rise and the frog never realizes he's being cooked. This is the way Satan tempts us all. One small step after another until we have found ourselves jumping off the ledge. It's gradual temptation. Here's the fourth way Satan tempts us. Satan tempts us under religious coverings. 
Now, I want you to think about this one in particular tonight. He tempts us under the, 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 the banner and kind of the cloak of, of religious things. And you can take the Pharisees as an example of this. I mentioned this earlier, but just think about the Pharisees for a moment. Isn't it ironic that the most spectacular sin ever committed, the killing of the Son of God, was done in the name of God? Now just sail on that thought for a moment. It's ironic that the most spectacular sin that this world has ever known, the killing of the very Son of God, was done by people who in the middle of committing the most spectacular sin ever committed, thought they were doing it for the name of God, for the good of God. Is that not unbelievable to think about? Sobering to think about. Their vice, killing the Son of God, was cloaked in the virtue of protecting the name of God. Now, I, I, I think this is like massively important for you and I to think about to do some self-reflection on. I think Satan gets more joy out of watching this sort of sin play out than any other sin. I think he loves it when people are sinning against God all the while thinking they are honoring the name of God. I, I just think we all need to be very careful about our propensity towards self-deception. That we get the self-justification script running so deep in our brain that we can't see that in a moment of thinking we are obeying God, we are grieving the heart of God. And, and Satan loves to tempt this way. Anytime he can ever get a person doing an evil thing, cloaking it in a great thing, he loves to do that. And here's why. Because it is so hard to see that. It's so hard to actually know the thing you're doing is actually grieving the heart of God, not protecting the heart of God, not, not protecting the name of God. It's so hard to see it when it's playing out. Thomas Watson, uh, he's an old Puritan. He said it this way in his book on the Lord's Prayer. He said that Satan can cheat men with false goods. I think it's a really important for you to know that Satan can, can cheat you with false good. He can make you think you're doing something good all the while, it's really bad. Satan can cheat men with false goods. He can make them believe that presumption is faith. I'm going to risk it all. But God, no, it's not, that's presumption, not faith. He's saying he, he can make you think that, that presumption is faith. That uncontrolled passion is zeal. That revenge is prudence. That greed is looking to money for your security is actually frugality. That prodigality or a wastefulness is good hospitality. He goes on to say this, Satan often writes water upon a glass of poison. And I just think we would all do well to consider that in our lives, just to ask the Lord to grow us in awareness of not just what we're doing, but why we're doing it to help us see beyond like the, the script of our self-deception. Satan oftentimes tempts in this way with religious covering around it. And lastly, number five, Satan tempts by promising repentance later. By, by promising there will be plenty of time later to get this thing on the tracks with God. Promising that you have forever 
to deal with this thing. Promising that, hey, as long as you can keep this particular temptation in the cage of your control, then you're okay. Why would you want to put that temptation to death if you could just put it in the cage and like, just whenever you want it, pull it out and put it back in whenever. Why would you want to put it to death when you can keep it in its cage? Why would you ever want to do that? You can always put it to death later. You can always really deal with that particular temptation later. There's always time for that. Listen to Thomas Watson go on to describe this. He says, Satan will let men be angry with sin. He has no problem with you being angry with your sin. He, he goes on. Satan will not let, or he, he will let men be angry with sin. He'll let them exchange sin or restrain sin, which keeps it a prisoner that cannot break out. But when it comes to taking away the life of sin, Satan labors to stop the warrant and hinder the execution. And I'm going to read that one more time. Satan will let men be angry with sin, exchange sin, or restrain sin, which keeps it a prisoner that cannot break out. But when it comes to taking away the life of sin, I mean to strangling sin in your life, Satan labors to stop the warrant and hinder the execution of that sin. The next phrase is golden. Listen to what he says. When sin is mortified, when it is put to death, when sin is mortified, Satan is being crucified. Do you want to know the best way to crucify Satan in your life? The best way to deal with Satan in your life? Here's the best way to do it. To kill sin whenever you see it in any moment in your life. When sin is mortified, Satan is being crucified. When sin is mortified, Satan is being crucified. This temptation is the devil's draw net by which, by which he draws millions to hell. It is a dangerous temptation. Sin is a sweet poison. Isn't that so true? It has a sugar coating around it. Sin is a sweet poison. The longer poison lies in the body, the more mortal poison becomes. So by delay of repentance, Sin strengthens and the heart hardens. The longer ice freezes, the harder it is to be broken. So the longer a man freezes in unrepentance, the more difficult it will be to have his heart broken. I think one of the most difficult lies of the enemy in terms of temptation to believe is, is that today is the best day to deal with sin and temptation in your life. I think it's one of the hardest lies to believe. Like it, what he's wanting you to believe is, wait until tomorrow. Whatever you do, tomorrow is the day for this thing. When God is saying that is a lie. There is no day like today to deal with your temptation. So can we just apply this for just a moment in the room? There are some right now who in the progression of your sin, if there is wrecking your life, the slow warm-up in your life, the, the thousand small steps, you are well underway. And it is just a matter of time now before Satan grabs you and destroys a lot of good things in your life. And here's the, the hard thing about you self-destructing. And many of us are on our way to self-destructing right now. The hard thing about this self-destruction thing is you don't just self-destruct. You destroy everything around you when you do that. Moms, dads, brothers, sisters, if you're married and have kids, you destroy husbands, wives, kids. You destroy everything when you do that, right? You never just self-destruct. 
And could we all just recognize tonight that for everyone in, in that position in the room, could we recognize that the Lord has put you in a room tonight where we are talking about evil and temptation and the way Satan does these things so that you would be reminded that tonight is a great time. There's no time like tonight to deal with that issue. Like you're, you're well on your way, like you're halfway there, maybe even three quarters. You may be one small step away and the Lord is saying, but it doesn't have to go that way. It doesn't, you don't have to keep going there. You, you could tonight turn from that, repent of that, come back over and do life with me. You can do that tonight. You, you don't have to go there. Could, could we just feel the Lord just inviting us back tonight to that? Just inviting us back. If you want to think of a picture of, of what life is in a fallen world, just picture the man who is walking through a field and this field is loaded with mines. There's thousands of mines in this field and he is, I mean, just, you know, tenderly just trying to feeling his way around in this, this field full of mines. That is the picture of your life and my life. Like you woke up today, I woke up today and we started tiptoeing in this field. In that field, there, there is the mine of bitterness. There is the mine of unforgiveness. There is the mine, the mine of pornography. There's the mine of uncontrolled anger and lust. There is the mine of, of zeal for the Lord being the, the cloak that our vice is under. There's all of these mines of temptation. Like right now in your life, can you see your life with that sense of urgency and that sense of danger? This is what the sixth petition is trying to help us feel, that we are all in that field with all of those minds out there, and you're living in it, and I'm living in it. Is that not a sobering thing to picture and see? This is our lives right now. This is where we're all in this room living right now. In the book that I mentioned by Thomas Watson, the old Puritan, when he was writing on this section of the Lord's Prayer on temptation, I just listed five ways that Satan tempts us the evil one tempts us, five, five ways. In his book, he lists 27 ways that Satan does this. 27 ways. Now, I thought what was so ironic about this, he spends 30 or 40 pages on the 27 ways that Satan tempts us. And it's from every angle imaginable. And then he, as soon as he finishes the 27, his next question is, so how are we to use this as human beings, as people who are following God? We just went through 27 ways. What is this supposed to produce in us? How would we use what we just read? Here was use number one that he mentioned. Number one way to apply it. He said this, number one, it should produce wonder that any of us are saved. It should produce wonder that we're all not dead somewhere in a ditch. Absolutely just wrecking our life beyond the point of return. It should produce that feeling in us. Now, and that's our second point. When, it, when we start to see that first issue, temptation, the evil one, it leads us to the second one, to the second point. It leads us to cry out, deliver us, God, deliver us. That's what it leads us to. If we're all in great danger, here is the number one need in this room for the Lord to deliver us. That's what you need. That's what I need. That's what we need for the Lord to deliver us. See, when we put temptation and the evil one on this side, when we see those two things, it produces in us the cry that's in the middle. Lord, please deliver me. And when we cry out, Lord, please deliver me, we have just walked into the major storyline of the Bible, haven't we? 
The storyline of the Bible goes like this. Our first parents were created. Um, God puts them in the garden. We just recounted the story. They sin against God. The curse of God falls on this broken world. Sin snares. The minefield of life begins at that point. But in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the Lord promises something. He promises that there will be one born of a woman who will crush and bruise the head of Satan. That one day there is going to be one born and he is going to destroy Satan, sin, and death and all of our enemies. There will be a day coming when that happens. And here is what the Old Testament is about. The Old Testament is about the anticipation of that deliverance. That's the storyline of the Old Testament. The Old Testament, and, and from a broad kind of view, is about a growing anticipation of, Lord, when are you going to send the one that's going to save us? When are you going to send the one that's going to deliver us? When are you going to do that? That is the pressing question, the growing question in the Old Testament. Is, Lord, when? When is that one going to come? And it's not just that this, this deliverance is anticipated in the Old Testament, but this deliverance that is promised in Genesis 3.15 is an unexpected deliverance. When you get to the, the opening pages of the New Testament, here is what you find. That deliverance comes in an unexpected pa uh, package. You would think it's going to come in, in the form of a military conquest leader sort of a, of a figure. But that's not how it comes, is it? Deliverance comes in the package of a baby. I could just picture me, if I've got the growing anticipation, God, when are you going to do this? When are you going to send the one that's going to save us? And the Lord says, here he is, it's a baby. I would just anticipate saying back to God, are you serious? This is what's going to deliver us? Are you kidding me? And God just looking back at me and saying, yep, that's exactly the form. That's the unexpected package this deliverance is taking us. Now, isn't that introducing us to the Christmas story? It's introducing us to the incarnation, what we're celebrating at Christmas. The fact that this deliverance would come in this unexpected package of a newborn child. We have a four-year-old, her name's Eva, and she's into something all the time. Um, here recently, I looked over in our kitchen. She had crawled up on our cabinets, or on like, you know, our, our uh, countertops, and she was up inside our, you know, the cabinets up above. We had to reach up and get them, trying to get plates and glasses and all that stuff down. Everything is breakable. She's trying to get it down. And when I look over, you know, at her, she's got the cabinets open, plates and stuff in her hand. It's one of those things where as a dad, I'm looking at her and I'm just teasing out the scenarios. So you just run like a hundred of those scenarios through your head and you're like, there's not one of those scenarios that end good for her or the plates, right? There's just no way this is going to end well. So I look at her in that moment and here's what I say. Eva, don't move. Don't, don't move a muscle. You wait right there. Because you just know if she moves a muscle, she tries to do anything, either her or the plates are getting broken. So nothing good's gonna come out of her doing anything in the mess that she's in. So it's an Eva, wait right there. And then I came over and I helped her down and we, we fixed the problem. Now, if you wanna know the message of Christmas in a nutshell, that's the picture. It's God looking at us in the mess of our sin and temptation and broken lives. He's looking at us in the minefield. We've got this temptation here, that temptation there. And God's looking at the field knowing we can't even see the minds. And he looks at us in the incarnation at Christmas and says, whatever you do, don't move. Just wait right there, I'll come and get you. Wait, wait right there, I'll be there for you. That's the message of Christmas in a nutshell. And that's exactly what we have happening in the birth of Jesus, isn't it? The Lord did come right there and rescue us. He came right there and saved us. 
in this baby that grew up to be a man, not just a man, but a God-man, right? And he lived a perfect life. When he was about 30, he crawled up on a cross, and there, God's creation, God's temptation, you know, driven creation, in that moment crucifies God's one and only beloved son. And in that moment of crucifixion, the full weight of our wickedness, the full weight of God the Father's wrath over our sin came crashing down on him. Three days later, he rises from the dead. Why did all of that happen? Here's why. Because you need to be delivered. Because I need to be delivered. Because temptation is too great for you to deal with. It's too great for me to deal with. Our only hope is for God to come and get us. For God to look at us and say, wait right there. I'll come and get you. Now, here's the greatest thing about this deliverance that God offers is this deliverance is available to anyone. To anyone who is willing to say, I'm stuck in my mess. I am stuck. If I try to get out of this, I'm just going to make it worse. God, I'm going to wait right here. Will you come and get me? For anyone who's willing to throw up their hands and say, God, come and get me. Right now, in this moment, God would be so privileged to do just that. I love how J.I. Packer says it, and I'll finish with this. He says, and the great point, and this is the great point of Christmas, and it's the great point of the sixth petition. And the great point is that Jesus' act of giving us this prayer is is an implicit promise. It is God promising us that if we seek deliverance from evil, we shall find it. Aren't we grateful for that? If we seek deliverance from evil, we shall find it. The moment, not like a year later or a day later, but the moment we cry, deliver us, God's rescue operation starts. Help will be on the way to cope with whatever form of evil threatens us. Amen? Let's pray together. I'm going to give you just a moment there where you are to allow the Spirit of God to be talking to you and to be interacting with you right now. And If you're a person in the room who is kicking the tires on Jesus and you're still trying to figure out, are you going to push your chips in with him or not? There's never been a, a moment where you've had this decisive move of faith toward him. Right now, the arms of God, the big-hearted God of the Bible, the kind-hearted God of the Bible, who would lose his son to make a way toward him available to you. That big-hearted God right now is saying to you, right now you can have deliverance. You can be rescued from, from God the Father's wrath. You can be saved from your sin. Right now, that could happen. And if you're in the room and you've never taken that decisive step of faith, don't believe the lie of Satan that says tomorrow will be okay. Next month will be okay. Next year will be the the, the year for that. Don't believe that lie. Today is the moment. Tonight is the moment. There's no moment like right now. So if that's you, you can take one of those cards underneath your seat. 
fill out that black section, and you can check that box, establishing a relationship with Jesus. And we would love to celebrate that with you. You can put that in the offering basket when we pass it around at the end. We'd love to know that and start that journey with God with you. So if that's you, man, what a great night for that. For sons and daughters of God in the room, those who are in Christ, you've stepped across, had that decisive moment of faith. Here's the truth for all of our lives. We are as much in need of deliverance from God today as the moment we first believed. So I want to beg you tonight to deal with those areas in your life where Satan is gradually tempting, knowing that he is patiently waiting for the opportune time to do the most damage to the most amount of people. I want to beg you tonight, if, if, if you're in the room and you are in the middle of sin, and here's the thing, no one even knows about it other than you and God tonight. That this would be a night where you let people know and you begin the hard work of battling against that. Where this is the night where repentance happens, you turn from that sin, you throw your life back toward Jesus. And just, just take a moment to evaluate your life, to think about your life. Where is it that Satan has his hooks in you with temptation right now? Wherever that is, this is the night something needs to be done about that. I love the third verse of Amazing Grace. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. That's point one of the six potential. We are all in grave danger. And here's the second part, deliverance. Tis grace that has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. So, Father, I pray for that sort of grace that would protect us, that would give us the will to fight against sin and temptation. So, Father, would you, would you grant that to the room tonight? Lord, I pray for that person who is hiding sin, thinking that they will just kind of do this in a private way. They're just not going to do that. So, Lord, help them see that. That this is where community comes in. This is where they need people to pray for them and walk beside them. Lord, for those who are hanging on to bitterness and unforgiveness, Lord, help tonight for this to be the night where that stops. Lord, for people who are down that gradual road of wrecking their lives, for this to be the night where repentance happens. So Lord, will you talk to us? Will you lead us? Will you, will you visit us right now in this room? And it's in your gracious name that we ask these things. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.